This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. This episode of the Science Podcast is brought to you by Atlassian makers of collaboration software that lets teams work and communicate better together. See how Jira, Confluence, HipChat, and Bitbucket give your team everything you need to organize, discuss, and complete shared work. Atlassian works to help teams large and small ascend to new heights to create what's next. Visit Atlassian.com. Atlassian, helping teams everywhere team up to create what's next. Atlassian.com. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 17, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Karen Ursha talks about improving interventions for cocaine addiction. And David Grimm is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on chiral molecules from outer space. We made a little video about this piece of research. And let me tell you, explaining chirality in the first five seconds so we can then move on to the actual news was definitely a challenge. And we did not get it done in that little amount of time. How's your definition of chirality, Dave? Can (laughs) you do it? Probably not a whole lot better. The basic idea is that a lot of molecules, especially big, really complicated molecules, tend to come in two mirror image forms, what researchers call left-handed and right-handed. Now, for all intents and purposes, these forms typically sort of act the same way. They sort of freeze and melt, same temperature, but there can be important differences. For example, there are some pharmaceuticals where one form is very effective in humans and the mirror form can actually be harmful. And researchers call this phenomenon chirality. And why we're interested in it is because we as human beings, and in fact, all life on Earth, 
uses the left-handed version of molecules that make up our amino acids, which are our building blocks of proteins. And this has been a big mystery. Why does all life on Earth use the left-handed version of these molecules versus the right-handed version? The deep mystery is this preference, and the far out answer might be space. What is the connection here? Right. Well, we know, or at least there's been this thought that maybe Earth got seeded with some of its building blocks for life from outer space. Perhaps something came in on an asteroid that had some of these very maybe precursor building blocks, and maybe there was a lot more left-handed ones of them than right-handed. And actually, that's been borne out when scientists have studied some of these objects that have come from space, they tend to find more left-handed forms. But they're still not sure, there's still a debate about, well, how did those forms get there in the first place? And whether the solution to this mystery really does lie in space. Chiral molecules have been spotted on asteroids and even on comets, actually, before this. But now we're talking about chiral molecules somewhere else. Where? In interstellar space, in fact, about 28,000 light years away in a gas cloud that's near the center of the Milky Way. And it's here that researchers have spotted a molecule called propylene oxide, which is a chiral molecule. Propylene oxide comes in two forms, left-handed and right-handed. It was spotted in interstellar space. Which form was it? (laughs) Well, we don't know, actually, (laughs) um, because the observations so far... The researchers can't tell what form it's in. But what they do know is that this molecule was found in a very cold part of the cloud. And there's been this speculation that these complicated molecules form on ice grains. And this would seem to confirm that. And ice grains are common in these diffuse clouds of interstellar gas and dust and may be a potential source of these molecules getting to Earth. Next up, we have a touching story on autism. The main feature of autism spectrum disorders are things like social deficits, communication issues, problems with social interactions, anxiety, all thought to be disorders of the brain. More recent definitions of autism, though, include an altered tactile sense. Where does this change, adding touch in, come from, Dave? Right. So psychiatry's Bible, the DSM as it's known, includes now touch as part of the abnormalities seen with autism. And Some specific examples is that we know that kids who are autistic or people that are autistic tend to be hypersensitive to even to light touch, and they can be overwhelmed by certain textures. Even going outside and feeling a gust of wind can be unnerving, very unnerving, actually, for many folks with autism. So we're starting to get this understanding that autism is affecting the senses as well. And this research that we're going to talk about looks at how this change in the sense of touch works in mice. How are these modeled mice altered to test this out? Well, the researchers created genetically altered mice where they would express a protein that's known to be involved in autism only in the peripheral nervous system. Now, this is the part of the nervous system that deals with things like touch and is not involved with the brain. And then they took these altered mice and they tested out their tactile senses. What were some of the tests they did and what were the differences between mutant mice and control mice in the sense? First of all, they, like people with autism, were hypersensitive to touch. When the researchers sort of blew on their backs, they freaked out a lot more than normal mice do. But socially, they were also much different than normal mice. They didn't seem to like hang out in big groups. They 
we're just as happy hanging out with inanimate objects as like with, an empty cup, <laughs> like an empty cup, as with their comrades. And so it was really interesting that even though the quote unquote autism that the researchers had created in these mice was not in the brain, only in the sense of touch, that the mice were still displaying a lot of these autistic symptoms. Another thought, I thought another point I thought was very interesting was they saw a big difference in adults versus immature mice and the effect that this mutation had on them. That's right. When they introduced this mutation in adult mice, the researchers didn't notice quite as severe symptoms uh, as they did in, in younger mice, which leads them to think that maybe part of what causes autism to develop is when you have these young kids and they're very sensitive to touch, that can directly start affecting their behaviors, the way they think about the world, the way they view the world. It becomes much more of a developmental thing. So one of the problems I had with this paper was that it was in mice and they were looking at kind of very strange analogs of human behavior, hanging out with a paper cup versus hanging out with other mice. And and I'm not sure it translates very well into an actual human. If this does translate to people, how could an intervention come about? What, what would be the translation here? Well, we know that there's drugs that can influence sense of touch. So this may be a possible therapy if touch is really playing a big role, especially in the early stages of life. This might be a way to deal with autism before it becomes untreatable. Lastly, we have a story on bone grafts. If you are missing a piece of bone, we're not breaking a bone, but we're taking a bone away, a piece of bone away for some reason, you may end up getting a self-transplant. The gold standard for replacing a missing piece of bone is autografting, taking bone from one part of the body, like the pelvis or a rib, and grafting it somewhere else. What are some of the problems with this approach, Dave? Well, first of all, nobody wants to lose bones from other parts of their body. But the other problem is that certain bones are much harder to replace than others, especially if we're talking about bones in our face. You know, we have very delicate features. Also, the bones in our face have to be very strong. We do a lot of chewing in our lives. And so that makes it a lot harder to come up with a technique that's going to be appropriate for replacing the bone in some places. The new paper that we're going to talk about poses an alternative to autografting for face transplant bones. And this alternative still gives you that personalization, like it's still coming from yourself, but they're getting the cells from somewhere else. Right. They're taking cells that would, what we call, differentiate into bone cells, and they're placing them in a scaffold. This traditionally has been done right before the grafting. So you could take this scaffold that sort of looks like the bone that you want to replace. You fill it with growth factors. You fill it with some cells that you hope will turn into bone, and then you insert it wherever you're missing the bone. What they did here is they wanted to give these cells a lot more time to develop into bone cells before they did the graft. And the thinking is that that this would be more successful because this precursor bone would would look a lot more like bone than just a bunch of cells that the researchers are sort of hoping to turn into bone. Right. So they they combined this approach of a scaffold with uh, cells from the animal and then also gave it some time to kind of establish itself. This was all done in an animal, in the testing here. It was done in a pig. When they introduced this graft and a couple other kinds into pigs, what exactly did they compare and, and what, what did they see? Well, a few pigs got the new treatment. A few pigs got no treatment at all. And a few received a scaffold that looked like the missing bone, but it had no cells inside of it. So of these three options, was there an obvious uh, winner when it came to when they were compared? Well, all three groups regrew a portion of their missing jaws, but 
only those that had gotten this this new approach had the most complete jaw regrowth. It was also a lot stronger than the other approaches. So they definitely saw an advantage to this new approach. But what about comparing it with, say, the autografting approach or, or something else that's out there already? Yeah, they've got, to, they've got to do more comparisons, but the researchers are confident that this will translate to people, and they're actually even hoping that it will be in human clinical trials within three years. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about whether very hot beverages can cause cancer. Also a story about how tumors reshape our blood supply and maybe even create a blood supply of their own. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about Brexit, whether Britain will stay in the EU and what impact that will have on fusion research. Also a story about whether the NIH grants process is discriminatory. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Brought to you from WHYY in Philadelphia, the NPR member station that brings you fresh air with Terry Gross, the pulse goes behind the doors of operating rooms, into the lab with some of the world's foremost scientists, and explores the history behind life-changing innovations to uncover the unexpected in the far corners of health and science. From tranquilizing chairs to shackles, the June 17th episode of The Pulse traces the development of mental health care in the United States through a visit to the nation's first chartered hospital, still in operation today. If you love the Science Podcast, check out The Pulse. To hear more about the U.S.'s first chartered hospital and other unexpected stories in health and science, look for The Pulse on your favorite podcast app. Okay, I just learned something doing that podcast segment with Dave Grimm. That happens to me every week. I'm so lucky to work somewhere that I get to learn all the time. And I know that the people who listen to this are the same. They're lifelong learners. They're here to get that knowledge. And that's why I think you'll really like the Great Courses Plus video learning service. You can watch video lectures on any topic, science, of course, but also history, art, things like that. And they're taught by top professors, and there's many videos in each series, so you really get a deep dive. They're giving our listeners a special chance to watch hundreds of these courses for free. And I want to especially call out the Inexplicable Universe series presented by Neil deGrasse Tyson. As usual, he does an amazing job presenting some of the universe's biggest mysteries in an approachable, engaging way. Sign up today, and as a science podcast listener, you will get one month free of The Great Courses Plus. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. Much of the destruction that comes with drug addiction is not due to the physical effects of the drug on the body, but in the toll the addiction takes on the person's life. I mean, they're engaged in illegal activities in order to obtain drugs, or they may even risk deadly infections by using contaminated needles. And it's not as if these things only happen when they're under the influence of the drug. Where is the risk avoidance? Why aren't 
consequences of consequence in these situations. Karen Ursha is here to talk about her work that looks closely at the underpinnings of these behaviors and what they mean for treatment. It's a problem. I mean, I don't know if it's still a problem in the U.S., but it's certainly a problem in Europe, cocaine um, yeah. and yeah. addiction. And, and there is no, there's no medical treatment. And the way they are doing the treatment could be improved by so much. So right. it is a structured way. Yeah. Why isn't there a medical treatment for cocaine? Isn't there one for... For, uh, for opiates, yeah, for opiates and for alcohol, but the, the drugs work differently. And there is one that is called Ritalin, but Ritalin is for ADHD. Right, it's actually identical to cocaine, but it has has a longer onset. So you swallow a tablet of Ritalin, and it takes one and a half hours until it works. Cocaine works immediately, but pharmacologically, these two drugs are very, very similar. It's oh, really interesting. So you can't give for cocaine addiction a replacement, a substitute, like you can do that for heroin. You can give a methadone. Right. And it's so devastating as well because it, uh, it interferes in the process of learning and attention and it has so massive effect on people's lives. It really damages their lives and people have so much guilt because they have there's a huge relapse rate. Right. When you talk about cocaine's interfering with learning, it's not just in the moment uh, that they're under the effect of the drug, right? It's it's kind of a longer lasting effect. It has yeah. to do with um... addiction doesn't happen overnight. So it's a process that you um, need to get into and need to need to learn. You also said that the relapse rate is really high for cocaine. Is that again specific to the kind of this learning that we talk about? Perhaps because there is no specific treatment. So if you don't have a substitute for for heroin, you have a substitute for alcohol. It is also high, but there's much more on offer for alcohol right. than there is for cocaine. So most of the treatment that people receive for cocaine is talking therapy, cognitive therapy. Many treatment services in the UK, they offer mm -hmm. the 12 steps abstinence model that was developed from a self-help approach. But it's nothing specific for cocaine. And a lot of the treatment is based on insight, which is probably useful, but not enough. So if you don't have anything specific, that makes people feel vulnerable. You were trying to tease apart how learning relates to cocaine addiction. And you looked at how cocaine-addicted subjects respond to incentives. So if they're given a reward or in some cases if they're discouraged from doing something, you know, how do they react differently than non-addicted subjects? I should probably say that our main aim was to find out why it is so hard to change people's behavior, behavior and people who are addicted to cocaine. Right. So normally when we see that what we are doing doesn't get us what we want or that it has bad consequences, leads to something bad or unpleasant, we change that. And our hypothesis was that cocaine users' behavior quickly becomes habitual and is resistant to change. And this is what we tested in, in the study. And we tested this in two settings. In one setting, they had to select the correct response and they were rewarded with points for that response. And in the other setting, they were trained to avoid receiving electrical shocks by pressing a foot pedal. When you say, how did they respond to positive and negative feedback? So cocaine users did respond to rewards and even to quite symbolic rewards such as points. But they appeared to be less motivated to avoid something bad that happens to them. And one of the, the experiments you did here was 
you know, you started out offering a reward for a certain kind of behavior, and then you tailed off that reward. You started to take it away, and then you looked at how people with cocaine addiction responded to that withdrawal of the reward versus the healthy subjects. What did you see there? Yes, we trained them. So there was a long training period. And then we changed the rules. We told all our participants that some of the responses that they've previously been associated with receiving points no longer did. And so they shouldn't respond to them. And whilst the control participants adjusted their behavior accordingly, which is what we would expect, the cocaine users did not take on board this information. And they continued doing the task as they had done throughout the training period. And basically, they responded in an automatic fashion. They did not take on board the consequences of their action. And this is typical for habits. Habits are performed irrespective of the outcome. And what about the negative feedback, the electric shocks that you talked about? When you change that... Yeah, the avoidance task. And in the avoidance task, participants were trained to press the left foot pedal to escape an electrical shock on their left wrist when they saw a picture associated with receiving a shock on that left wrist. And they had to press the right foot pedal to avoid a shock on the right wrist in response to a different picture. And then we detached one of the electrical cables from one wrist so that they uh, could not receive a shock. The other cable was still intact. The cocaine group, like the control group, stopped pressing the foot pedal to avoid shocks for the wrist that was no longer attached to the stimulator. So they were sensitive to this devaluation. And that is really in, in contrast to the responses in the other setting. Right where they uh, were told that the the responses that they made to receive the points no longer did. So interestingly, for the other risk that was still attached to the stimulator, they continued to make fewer attempts to avoid the shock. So on the one hand, that was still where they could receive the shocks, they avoided them less. And on the one where they couldn't receive the shocks because it was detached, they stopped immediately. So they were sensitive of taking the adversity away, but they were not sensitive to the adversity itself to do something about it. That's very strange. So can you kind of wrap it all together? You know, the subjects don't seem to care whether the reward is there or not, and then they have this very different behavior with the adversive stimuli. What's going on behind all of this? It is, first of all, it's the reward. They respond to reward, and then we train them. We train them to learn a behavior. They had to make a response in order to get the reward. And first of all, I have to say as well, they, they were poor learners in both of the settings. They were really poor learners. But in the reward setting, their behavior improved over the trials with prolonged training. So they do improve when you give them enough training. But then they seem to switch into a habit mode. They become automatic. They just say, oh, now I know what to do, and then they do it no matter what. And they don't care anymore whether what they are doing is meaningful or not. If you do that in a different setting where they have to avoid an electrical shock, something negative, something unpleasant, they again have problems learning this, but their responses don't improve over time. So they don't do better. If you give them 10 trials to learn, they don't do better. When you take the shock away, they immediately stop. So they are very clear and very sensitive to the fact when you take an adversity away, but they don't avoid it in the first place. Right. And this is really what we see in people with cocaine addiction. It doesn't matter how often you tell people all the bad things that can happen to them when they continue using. They know that, but they still not necessarily change their behavior because of that. Or you tell them that there's a risk associated to get an infection when they share paraphernalia. But they still do that. Or the fact that they can lose their jobs. But 
it doesn't deter them from doing it. So you're able to kind of show this behavior that manifests itself in the drug seeking and the drug using in a much more controlled setting. And not drug related setting. So the examples that I gave you are all related to drugs. Mm -hmm. But if you take this into an environment where there are no drugs, it's just about an electrical shock or it's about gaining points. That has nothing to do with drugs. And you see exactly a behavior that we also see when they are using in their drug-taking behavior. So this, this is my chicken and egg question. How does this habit-forming bias, this you know, strategy to form a habit rather than stick with goal-oriented behavior, how does it come about? Is it a result of cocaine use or is there something else also going on here? Perhaps it's a little bit of both. So cocaine does play a role in this tendency to develop habits. But a much greater role seems to be played by life stress that people have endured and poor learning performance during the training period. People who have had stressful life events, they are much more inclined to switch to the habit mode than people who have had easier lives. And if these people are also using cocaine, that's not a good mix. Right. They then also use cocaine, they are much quicker at developing a cocaine-taking habit and finally become addicted to cocaine. Mm. Now, habits are something normal. We all do that at some point. Some people do it quicker, some people do it less quickly, but it's quite useful sometimes to develop a habit because then we can focus attention to other things. Cocaine use seems to be very quick at developing habits, and the problem is they don't switch back to goal-orientated behavior. That is a problem, and it may be reflected in their problems with learning. So they have problems with goal-directed learning. And if the system that is needed to switch back and to guide them back to the goal is not working properly, then they are stuck with a habit, and the habit perpetuates itself. Right. Well, let's go back to kind of the big picture here. The reason that you're engaging in this type of study is there's no medical or biological yeah. solution to cocaine addiction at this point. Talk therapy is, and other kinds of social intervention is where it's at. How can we target that more to cocaine? How can it be more specific? How does this research guide that? Basically, what we found was that they do respond to rewards, but when they see that a behavior is rewarded, they respond to rewards and then they turn into an automatic mode then they don't care what comes out of it, whether that makes sense or not. They're doing it anyway. If you give them in therapy a reward, you have to place this reward wisely. If you reward every behavior that they're doing, you end up facilitating their switch to habits. So you need to place reward intermittently. Is there anything that suggests that you know, in therapy, you should try to form different habits, like take advantage yes, of this habit. and that's the next step. So I was just these rewards. And then you can also use their strengths, because they have a strength in forming habits, to develop different habits, good habits that replace the bad habits. That is another approach that one could take. And also what would be important is to train them in goal-directed behaviors. What we found is that they have problems with learning so if their goal-directed system is boosted, that would help them to get back to the goal. So if they notice that the, the behavior that they're doing doesn't make sense, they could switch back to the goal-orientated system more easily. But because that system is problematic or weaker than in healthy people, then they are a bit stuck with their habit. 
and also what I've shown in my previous science paper, they also have problems with self-control. They're really trapped. They have a propensity for habits. They have poor self-control and their goal-directed system is not as good as it should be. So supporting them in these aspects in terms of self-control, in terms of goal-directed learning would certainly help. And I think for avoidance, I think that is something that I mentioned earlier. I don't think it is sufficient to just tell people all the bad things that can happen to them. It doesn't change their behavior. It would be more important to protect them. Just telling them, for example, um, you shouldn't share paraphernalia with your friends because you can get an infection. That wouldn't deter them from doing it. But protection might be vaccinating or doing something to protect them because they themselves, they wouldn't protect themselves. Yeah. Karen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Karen Ursha and colleagues write about cocaine addiction in this week's issue. Don't forget to check out The Pulse via your favorite podcast app. You really don't want to miss this week's episode. From tranquilizing chairs to shackles, June 17th's episode of The Pulse traces the development of mental health care in the United States through a visit to the nation's first charter hospital, still in operation today. The Pulse from WHYY in Philadelphia. Check it out. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.